0: Name. So we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But before we do that, some of us are familiar with the fact that the church at Corinth, those that know their Bibles a little bit, know that it was uh, probably the polite way to put it is it was quite a challenge for the Apostle Paul. Uh, They were a a spiritual church, a very spiritual church in one sense, in that it seems from what we read that the miraculous, the, the supernatural, operation of the gifts of the Spirit was very active among them. But on the other hand, they had many, many problems, uh, a lot of which were a product of a lack of understanding and a lack of spiritual maturity. And they failed to address sinful conduct that was openly being practiced, and that flowed on in their church to be represented in their relationships with each other. When you read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, you would find that there were factions or there were groups within the church that were aligning themselves with different leaders. Some would say, well, I'm a disciple of Peter. Others would say I'm a disciple of Paul or a disciple of Apollos or somebody would you know, play the big card and say, well, I'm just a disciple of Christ. I'm above all you guys. And what, what, what I find interesting is that about this is that as far as we can tell, These leaders had nothing to do with those divisions. They weren't actually gathering followers and promoting this idea, but it just seemed to have have been a product of the division that was was in the church at Corinth. Uh, They were also completely misusing the practice of the Lord's Supper so that instead of it uniting them in the memory of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it was actually adding more friction in the the family of God. There are things that... The scripture encourages us to do such as have communion as have the lord's supper but they're not magical procedures the condition of the human heart when it's involved in the instructions that are found in the word of god is 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 very very significant and we can have communion every time we meet but if our hearts aren't where they're meant to be it just becomes a religious ritual like anything else amen paul even wrote to them in chapter 3 telling them that he was unable to give them anything more than milk. He wasn't talking about literal milk, but in terms of the teaching he gave them. He said, I can only feed you with milk because you're, you're too carnal for meat. You don't have enough maturity to be able to digest something that has some strength in it, that, that takes a little while to process, a little while to digest. And he, he actually identified the divisions amongst them as clear evidence of their immaturity. I heard a preacher just recently say something about spiritual maturity that really resonated with me, and I wanted to share it with you. He said that the difference between spiritual immaturity and maturity is not that we live our lives without ever having a bad thought or a bad attitude, that we never struggle or question our faith. But rather, he said, when we are spiritually mature and we are walking with God, we allow Him to correct us quickly. And to readjust us, and we keep on going with him. Often, what happens when we are when we are immature is when we're immature is that when we make a mistake or we get upset because we've been corrected, it takes us a year to get over it. And I thought that was worth considering. You know, you will always have a battle. I'd love to tell you that there is this place of spiritual maturity that when you reach it, that you no longer have temptation you no longer have weakness, that you look at the other poor mortals in the church that you attend and their struggles and you remember when you had those problems. You will always have the battle. Your flesh will be with you until Jesus comes back. But it is our response to things that reflects our maturity. In every situation you face, there will be a scriptural response and an emotional response. Now, when they're the same, it's easy. When the scripture says, O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God, when you've had a week where the boss has given you a pay rise, where everything in your family's going great, when you've, there just doesn't seem to be any problems, your emotions and the scriptural instruction are together. But when the boss hasn't given you a pay rise, but in fact he's given you a week's notice, your family feels like they're falling apart, everything you touch just seems to turn to disaster, the scriptural response hasn't changed. But the emotions are way over here. And we have to choose which of those options we will go with. That's a reflection of where we're at spiritually. Because we sometimes simply have to take the scripture and I think there's absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, I would encourage you to be honest with God and say, this is where my emotions are, but this is what you say. I do not feel victorious, but you've said the battle is yours. I do not feel like everything's under control, but you've said you'd never leave me nor forsake me. And so we acknowledge the emotional response, but we choose the scriptural reaction. That's spiritual maturity. Amen. It is our response time sometimes, how long it takes to respond appropriately to correction, to chastening, and to the drawing of the Holy Ghost that really makes the difference. And this church at Corinth that Paul was writing to, it doesn't even seem like they were thinking about correcting anything seemed to be fairly happy with where they were. They weren't even worrying about trying to make things right. And for the sake of a bit of background, Corinth is first mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Paul comes to that city, and as was his usual practice, the first thing he does is he seeks out his natural brethren. He seeks out the Jews, the Israelites, goes to synagogue, looks to meet some of his own people to share the gospel with them. Now, many times that failed fairly quickly, and he was politely asked to leave, and he took the gospel to the Gentiles, or the people that weren't the Jews. But in Corinth, he meets a couple, a man and his wife, by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And they become very important characters in the New Testament church, and they travel with him, and you can follow some of that in the book of Acts if you want to. But then he spends his time, often as was the case, most of his focus was on the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people he was trying to to reach them. And so it seems that although there were possibly some Jewish believers in the church at Corinth, it was largely made up of Gentiles, people just like you and me. Now, the reason I took the time to establish that is that is very significant when we consider our text. First Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Got the sniffles a little bit. I don't think it's COVID, so just stay away from me. First Corinthians 10 and 1. Says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters or idol worshippers, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, or examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Amen. I'm starting some lessons today that may last for a few weeks that are titled Lessons, lessons from the Wilderness. Lessons from the Wilderness. Paul begins this chapter by referring back to the experience of the children of Israel when they were delivered from the slavery and bondage of Egypt. He teaches the Corinthians that God brought them through the Red Sea by supernaturally causing the waters to separate, creating a highway. I think it's important we understand it wasn't a single lane path. I don't believe it would have taken forever for that many people. He effectively made a highway through a sea for the people to pass over, and then he used the same water to destroy their enemies. Paul writes that this experience, together with the pillar of cloud that hovered above the tabernacle, and if you've been here on Sunday nights, we've been learning about the tabernacle, that pillar of cloud hovered above the tabernacle during the day, there was an experience, there was a connection there between the baptism that they had in Corinth in Jesus' name, Amen. He he was drawing, he's saying they were baptized in the sea and in the cloud. He's putting together that experience. He then adds to those details of how the Lord fed them and watered them miraculously in the desert. And I believe he was showing another connection with the Spirit of God that in the New Testament church watered their souls and the Word of God that fed them or feeds them. But then in verse 5, and it's on the next slide I believe, Paul writes that with many of them, God was not pleased and that they were overthrown. That expression doesn't really give us the clarity. What it means is that they died in the wilderness. Many of them died in the wilderness. Verse 5 says, but with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, this takes us back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament where the Lord used Moses to lead the people to the edge of the land that he had promised them. And you can read that, I think it's around about Numbers 11, 12, 13, somewhere around there. And the Lord told Moses, when he brought them to this place, he said, choose you out a man, one man from every tribe, and send them into the land. The scripture uses the word to spy out the land, to, to go in and see what was there, see what they needed to be ready to, to deal with. Now, upon the return of these 12 scouts or spies, I think we'd probably better understand them as scouts. When we think of spies, we tend to think of trench coats and fedoras and dark glasses. They, they didn't look like that. But they went in to to scout the land. And the reports that they brought back included details such as a rich and fertile land that yielded incredible produce, clusters of grapes that were so large it took two men to carry them between them. That's a big cluster of grapes. I've eaten a lot of grapes. I've seen a lot of grapes. I've usually been able to carry them on my own. But this was it was a statement of how rich the land was. They described it as a land that flowed with milk and honey. Again, figurative language. There weren't rivers of milk and honey flowing through the promised land, but it was a statement of the, there was just provision and goodness. And God's blessing was on that place. And it was a place where as the people of God, they would be able to flourish. But there were other details that came back. And those details included that there were great cities there with great walls. You read on in the history of Israel, you see they came to Jericho, which was one of those great cities with great walls. They also said that the people who lived there were strong and that there were giants among the people. In fact, They were so uh, affected by these giants that they said that to them that we were like grasshoppers and that was how we saw ourselves. Such was the the impression these giants had made upon them. They felt like they were as small as grasshoppers. And so these positive and negative reports began to cause a conflict amongst the people. It's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad. And as is so easy, the way with human nature, fear began to spread among the people. And there were two young men by the name of Caleb and Joshua that did everything they could. They brought back the positive report. They did everything they could to calm the people down and say, God's going to take care of us. But fear had spread through the crowd and gripped their hearts. And they began to moan and complain. And if if you read about a lot of the history of Israel, particularly under the leadership of Moses, it seems they all had that spiritual gift. But some of the things that they said were like, we should have just died back in Egypt. And did God bring us out here so that our children could die in this wilderness? God was not pleased, to say the least. That's the polite way to put it. In fact, he was going to destroy the people. He said to Moses, stand out of the way. I'm going to wipe this bunch out. I'll take you. We'll start again. We'll do Israel part two. But Moses interceded for the people. He, he appealed to the Lord of what the, their enemies would say and, and, and the Lord held back the total destruction, but there were consequences for their reactions because then the Lord said, and you can read all this yourself in Numbers, the Lord said that the consequences of their doubt and their fear was that nobody from the age of 20 and upwards would see the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. And the Lord went a step further, and he said, he said, your children, he said, the ones that you accused me of bringing out here in the wilderness to die, they will see my promise, but you won't. We we have to understand something about God, and, and this goes in the face of a lot of modern Christianity, but the same Jesus who brings grace and mercy and love, brings judgment and holiness and accountability. It's not a popular message, but there's a reason we needed the cross amen and so slowly but surely those who were 20 and older were overthrown as corinthians says or they died in the wilderness now let me just digress for a moment some i've heard it said i've even heard it preached that as christians we will all have to have wilderness experiences or that we will all have to go through the wilderness now It is definitely true that the Bible says that we will have trials and tribulations, that the Lord will test our faith so that our faith may grow stronger. But the wilderness was a consequence of faithless actions, not a test from God. God didn't line up the wilderness. The people effectively chose the wilderness when they didn't trust God. There is a big difference between being punished and being pruned. Big difference between the two. Job went through a trial, a severe trial, because of his faithfulness. Israel went through the wilderness because of their faithlessness. There's a big difference between those two. And we, we need to understand the difference because it's not always easy to tell when you're in the midst. Job was trying to work out what he'd done. The truth was it was because he did things well that that situation arose. And so if you're going through something that feels like whatever word you like, wilderness, trial, tribulation, struggle, search your heart. If you feel like your heart's right before the Lord, if there's things you don't feel like you anything you've got to sort out, then just trust God that he'll bring you through. Amen. But we—it it is not really accurate to say that everybody has to go through a wilderness because the wilderness was a product of bad choices. Amen. We have to understand the difference between the two. So most of the church at Corinth, and we're going to sort of jump from Corinth back to the Old Testament as we go along, wasn't Jewish. They weren't the children of Moses or Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It was not their history. It was not the story of their forefathers. The children in Corinth hadn't grown up hearing the story of the Passover every year. They hadn't heard the story so many times of how the Red Sea was rolled back for a multitude to walk through. So the history is not naturally connected to the church at Corinth. They can't say, well, they were our forefathers. But in verse 6, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 6, Paul makes it clear, he says, Now these things were for our examples, to the intent, or for this purpose, that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. So the Apostle Paul, who is a scholar of the Old Testament, Even though it wasn't their history, he said these things were given to us for our example. Even though the Corinthians were not Israelites, he included the Corinthian church in that statement. He said these things are for an example for us today. And in doing so, by including the church at Corinth, he included you and I. Because we're a part of the same New Testament church as the Corinthians were. I'm really glad to say that I don't feel like I'm pastoring a church like the Corinthian church. Might have run away a long time ago. But we are in the same church age as the people at Corinth. So these things are an example for me. They're an example for you. Even though they are 2,000 years after Paul wrote to the Corinthians and around about 3,500 years after the events that he refers to took place. It is one of the amazing things about the Lord is how he can take something that happened in a desert in the Middle East in another time to another people who spoke another language whose lives were completely different to ours and say, I put that there so that you might learn something. That should blow our minds because there is absolutely no natural historical connection as far as I'm aware for most of us. Do we have anybody with any Greek heritage? So most of us us can't claim a connection to Corinth. If we don't have any Jewish heritage, we can't claim a connection to Moses either. And yet, although naturally we see a disconnect, spiritually God made a connection. And he said these things are there that even today we might learn something from those things. And so in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul selects about five things as specific examples that he refers to. And he he does what I call sometimes when I'm looking at the scripture, he bookends them. We all know what a bookend is? It's, you know, We've all got books on our iPads and phones now, so you don't need a bookend for those. But if you've ever... A bookshelf that doesn't have ends on it will often have something heavy on each end of the row of books to keep them in place. Sometimes it might be something that's actually cut in half, like it might be the front half of an animal on this end or the back half on that end. It's decorative, it holds the book's... In place and it seems that sometimes in the scripture there are passages where the Lord sort of bookends a teaching with two things that sort of hold it together and in this passage I see two bookends the first one is in verse 6 which we've read a few times it says now these things are for our examples and then he begins and at the end of those things in verse 11 and 12 he puts the other bookend there and he says now all these things happened unto them for our examples And they are written for admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So included in this passage with these bookends, twice we're told that they're written as examples for us. They were also written in verse 11 and 12 for our admonition. An admonition is a warning or a call to pay attention to something. They were written to us because we are in the last days. Amen. If the Corinthian church was told that, how much more are we close to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? And in verse 12, they were written, it said, and if you think you stand, he said to him, wherefore let him that thinks he stands. That means what he was saying was, if you think that you are somehow immune to being tempted or affected the way they were in the wilderness, he said, take heed, pay attention. So don't think this is just some interesting historical trivia. He said it's there for an example. And so for the next few weeks, I'm not sure exactly how long, we'll work it out as we get there, we're going to spend some time between the bookends and hopefully allow the Lord to admonish us to take heed. Amen. And so just for the rest of this lesson, I'm going to focus our attention back on verse 6, which we've already read multiple times, but we're going to read it again. First Corinthians 10 and 6 says, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Amen. Although lust or carnal desires of the people of Israel is connected to every issue in this passage, which we'll see as we go along, this verse seems to refer to a particular event that took place in Numbers chapter 11. So Numbers 11 and 1 which, by the way, is even before the spies went into Israel, into the promised land. It says, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost part of the camp. Remembering what we said about the Lord before. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taborah, which simply means burning or a place of burning, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. And then in verse 4, it says, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. They ate nothing free in Egypt the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic but now our soul is dried away there is nothing at all beside this manner before our eyes so in the first two verses two or three verses of this chapter the people complained they suffered the consequences and yet it seems their memories of that faded really really quickly the mixed multitude that's described in verse 4 is speaking about people that joined themselves to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, but weren't actually Israelites. They were kind of tag-alongs. Some of the commentaries refer to them as riffraff, which is a little bit of an old expression, but that some of them call them. And these people begin to complain about the miraculous provision of God. If you don't know the story of how God took care of them in the wilderness, every morning there was what was called manna, M-A-N-N-A, that appeared on the ground with the morning dew. Uh, there's some sorts of description of it in the scripture, but God miraculously used it, and from that they could make food to eat. God provided that miraculously every single day, except for the sixth day of the week where they gathered enough for the Sabbath. It was they only, only allowed to gather enough for that day. It was It was both a demonstration of God's provision, but it required them to have faith in God that there would be more there tomorrow. That's why they didn't do a week's manna shopping like most of us would. They got it every day. Every morning they had to go out and gather that because that's what the Lord said. And strangely enough, God wants us to pay attention to what He says. And they had to trust Him that just take what you need for today. And God made sure there was enough for everybody. Amen. Amen. But this mixed multitude started the complaining. They got a little bit sick of having manna. They'd used every recipe they could think of. Maybe they'd had fried manna, curried manna, satay manna, whatever kind of manna you can think of. And they'd run, and they were getting a little bored. They said, oh, who will give us flesh to eat? They wanted some meat. They wanted some meat. And the, the people began to complain. But then what happened when the mixed multitude started complaining was that the children of Israel began to join in. And they began to join in in the complaining chorus. And the song that they were all singing was, we want something different to eat. We want meat, we want cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlics. And the complaining became contagious. What is it about human nature that the negative travels easily? But the positive has to be pushed uphill. It's just something about human nature. There's a lesson for us there in that contagiousness that we need to pay attention about who's influencing us. Whose song are we singing? Who are you joining in with? We need to think about those things. The fact that they quickly forgot the suffering that came with being in Egypt. They're saying, we had all these things and the Lord, saying, really, do you not remember where you were when you cried out to me? When you were under the, the, the whip, when you were enslaved? Do you not remember where you were? And he got upset with them. The Lord got angry. And it, it got to Moses as well. You know, we read earlier how Moses interceded for the people. He said, Lord, please don't destroy them. But there were other times that, you know, leaders are human. There's a revelation for you. Leaders are human. This, in this particular passage, if you, I'm not going to read it all, but if you read the bit in the middle, you'll see Moses basically goes to God and said, why didn't you give me these people? Are they my children? Do I have to carry them? Moses said, Moses needed a holiday. He needed to go away for a while. But, you know, he, he, it was just, the people just seemed to forget so quickly where God had brought them from, remembering that these things are written for our examples. You get toward the end of the chapter in response to their desire for flesh in verse 31, Numbers 11 and 31, it says, And there went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quails like little birds little chickens from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side around about the camp and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth and the lord stood and the sorry and the people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day and they gathered the quails he that gathered least gathered 10 homers and they spread them all abroad for themselves around about the camp. Now, depending on what commentary you read, some people say they wasn't talking about the quails being two foot deep from the ground, but they were flying low, so they were easy to collect. Either way, either way, there was KFC as far as you could see that way, and as far as you could see that way. And the people, the person that gathered the least. Now, when you try to work out what a homer is in terms of volume, There's all these different ideas. But conservatively, it might have been like your regular household bucket. So the person that gathered the least gathered 10 buckets of KFC. Lord knows who gathered the most and how much they gathered. But such was the greed and the lust. Because you read on in verse 33, it says, And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, while they were still chewing it, the wrath of God was kindled against the people and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of that place Kibroth Hata'avah because there they buried the people that lusted. Such was their complete loss of memory of what God had done. They were consumed with their own greed and their own lusts and their passion... For their own desires far outstripped any passion that they had for God. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that God was disgusted with them. And he caused the plague to strike them while they were filling their bellies. Hibroth, Kibroth Hata Avar, or however it might be pronounced properly, translated means the graves of lust. The graves of lust. Now, it is highly unlikely... This morning, that any of us here are going to lose our souls over a desire for meat. But whatever Egypt you came out of, whatever Egypt you came out of, it will call out to you from time to time, trying to get you to sing the song that you used to sing, trying to get you to start complaining about your life now and why it's so hard and so terrible. And I remember. Don't trust your flesh's memories you ever got together with a family, extended family, Christmas or somebody's birthday and somebody starts telling a story and you're thinking, that's not how I remember that story. And then you, you start arguing, that's not what really happened. You did this and you did that. No, no, You've all got a different version of that story. Well, there is a God version of your history and there is a devil version of your history and they are not the same story. And we need to remember the God version which says you were in sin and in bondage and unable to free yourself and I miraculously shed blood to bring you out through the water under the cloud and the pillar of fire. The devil's version is can you remember the garlic and the fish and all the other stuff? And from time to time, particularly when you find yourself struggling, you'll hear a tune that you haven't heard for a while. It's the old song. It's the old song. It's the complaining. I've been around long enough that I've known too many people that have listened to the complaining, then joined in, and then wanted to go back. They picked up the chains of bondage that were broken, and they placed them around their own necks again and returned back egypt these things are written to us for our example for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come wherefore let he that stand that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall amen I want to read two psalms in closing psalm 106 verses 14 and 15 referring back to israel it says, but they lusted, or but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and tempted God in the desert, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. That leanness is not talking about low fat. When you dig into the meaning of that word, it has to do with wasting away, perishing. He gave them what they wanted, but there came a price for that. The 40th Psalm, and this isn't on the slide, so don't freak out, Esther, it's not there. Psalm 40 and verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And He has put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. And then the next statement says, many shall see it. How many of you have ever seen a song? Normally you would say we're going to hear a song. But when God gives you a song, people will see it. Because your life changes. Your actions are different. The way you respond to things is different because God gives us a new song. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord, blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust and respects not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies i'm not talking about dishonest humans the devil is the father of lies don't turn aside to his lies. stand with me this morning if you would. we're going to be learning more about lessons from the desert because the from the wilderness because these things are for our example we don't want to be like those that lusted. The things There is some things in our past lives that we did enjoy. Not everything was completely miserable, but we have a hope. I don't want my carcass to be overthrown in the wilderness. I want to be there on that day. Let's lift our hands and just worship Him for a moment. Lord, we love You, Jesus. We thank You, Jesus, for Your goodness. We thank You, Lord, for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You, Lord, that in just about every page of this book, there is an encouragement, there is a warning, there is instruction, there is strength, there is food for our souls. Lord God, I pray, help us, oh God, to consider the example of your people as they wandered, Lord God, that we might not be overcome.